Welcome to the South Canaan Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be here. It's good to see some faces I haven't seen in a little while. Really thankful for everyone's participation in the services thus far. Uh, It's special because of you helping us out. We're glad you could be here today. So I want to start this morning with a question that, as I'm looking at now in my notes, seems a little crazy that I would be asking, but what would you do if I told you I have a llama petting zoo in my backyard, that I have a dozen llamas, and I open this up, and people can come in, and they can pet the llamas? Well, I can see some of you already scrunching up your faces going, uh, what? And it's going to be that kind of sermon? Okay, but roll with me for a second. What would you do? You probably think to yourself, that doesn't seem right. I know Aubrey really likes llamas, but there's no way that she would let you have 12 llamas. And I've seen your backyard. There's no way you could fit that many back there. You would have some doubt, wouldn't you? You'd be skeptical of that claim. You know, sometimes when we hear incredible claims, we get pretty skeptical, and that's not a bad thing, because we don't want to be duped by every crazy idea that we hear. I believe the Bible defends this idea. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the instruction here for these people that John is writing to is, whenever you hear something from God's word, when someone claims to be from God, don't just say, oh, they claim to be from God, it must be true. Rather, test that. See if it really is true. Think critically. Be able to look at this information and see if this squares with what God has said. Just because someone says, I'm from God, doesn't mean you can actually trust them. So God's called us to a level of critical thinking, but there's a problem with that sometimes. The problem is that God-given ability to think critically gets turned in ways that aren't always helpful. Sometimes we begin to look at things that we see maybe in God's word or things that a preacher says and we think, is that right? I know that's in the Bible, but is that really true? How could that be? And we begin to look at things that God has said um, about as serious as the idea of me having a llama petting zoo in my backyard. You know, we as Christians have new opportunities in the world that we live in. And sometimes we have honest questions. Our ability and the mind that God has given us gives us honest questions and gives us honest doubts. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 35 says this, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. As we're thinking about this, we need to be careful that we don't throw away confidence. That doubt is not somewhere we should be, but it's sometimes a place that we go. Up to looking at this study before, I've had basically a one-step strategy for dealing with doubt, and it goes something like this. Just don't. Have you ever heard that before? Well, if you have a doubt, just try to put it out of your mind and ignore it. Now, I think there's a case for mental fortitude, but I think the scriptures give us more tools for dealing with doubt, something that we may all experience from time to time. So what I wanted to do is I want to help us today to consider how do we doubt in faith? How can we have faith in God? How can we, as the man that came to Jesus, say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? That's what we want to do today, is whenever we have a belief in God, but there's things that we're not quite sure how all this squares, how do we deal with that? How can Jesus help us with our doubts in the midst 
of faith. The first thing I want to do is I want to look at a couple examples of this. After we look at a few examples, I want to look at some causes of doubt. Then third, why we need to deal with it. And fourth, how do we deal with it? So we'll look at some examples, some causes, why we need to deal with it. And finally, how to deal with it. The first example is a song that we sent is in, in context with the song that Uncle Mark led this morning. Thank you for those songs. Is Thomas. In John chapter 20, verse number 25 and 24, it says, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to him, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger to the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So as we sang about this morning, Thomas said, Nope, not going to do it. Y'all are crazy. I know we walked with him. I know what he said. But there's no way that Jesus could have actually risen from the dead. But we notice here in verse 26 that after eight days, so a week later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came and the doors being shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and look at my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So this is a classic example of someone dealing with doubt that Jesus was willing to work with. Jesus was willing to work through this. Notice he doesn't come here and scold Thomas and say, you ought to have known better. But rather, he gives him the opportunity for him to have a more complete faith. There's one other thing I want to notice about Thomas. Is that doubt was not the end for Thomas. Tradition and history tells us that Thomas went on to give his life for the cause of Jesus Christ, to go and preach the gospel in foreign lands. Just because we have a doubt does not mean we are now a black sheep Christian. Okay, We can move past this. I want to look at another example. You guys know the story of Job, a man who lost all of his stuff at the hands of Satan, who lost his family, who lost his health, who lost his wealth and everything that went along with it. He says something in Job chapter 9, 16, just hopelessly, he states, if I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Think about that statement for a second. If I called to God and he came down and answered me, I still wouldn't believe. Now, that's the sort of thing that if I was counseling or talking with some other Christian, they said, I'd be like, okay, hold on a second. We got we to gotta take a step back and, and recenter here. But that's where Job was at. I want to notice something about what Job said. Job chapter 1, verse 22, it says, In all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. It says that again in Job 2, verse number 10, that Job did not sin with his lips. So this is dealing with the first events of his life. But if we look later at the end of the book, God has this to say. It says, The Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord spoke to Eliphaz the Temnite, saying, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. And so... Job had some problems that had to be worked through, but he wasn't misrepresenting God. There was a frustration there that Job was trying to work through. And so just because we have a question, just because we have a concern, just because stuff isn't lining up the way we think it should with God doesn't mean that things are completely over. Finally, I want to look at the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, two and one verses 2 and 4. O Lord... How long shall I cry and you will not hear? Have you ever said that to God? I don't know if I have the courage to say that. How long will I cry and you will not hear me? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contentions arise. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. 
for the wicked surrounds the righteous. Therefore, therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Here, Habakkuk looks and he says, Lord, only injustice is done. Right never prevails. It's never a storybook ending. It seems like evil people always win. Why? How long are you going to let that happen? Notice here what he says further in verse number 13. He says, you are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? These are powerful questions. Questions that maybe some of us have had, and if you're like me, you're just not willing to admit that you've had before. But all of these are given to us as examples of men who were righteous, who were working through what it means to have faith in God. And so what I want to look at now is we've seen that we can come back from this, that we can continue to be Christians, that we can continue to have a relationship with God. How do we work through this? So we've seen some examples, and now we want to look at what are some causes? What are some things that might cause us to doubt? And I want to look at that for two reasons. First reason is simply that if we know what causes it, we know we're not weird when it happens. We know that a lot of people go through this, and this is a normal thing that we have to work through. This is a part of the human experience. You're not broken if you have a doubt or a question. Okay? The other thing is we can arm ourselves against it. We can be aware that, hey, this is normal when this happens, and I should be aware and be, be proactive maybe in handling this sort of situation. There's six things I want to look at that I think are helpful to understand causes of doubt we can find quickly. In the book of Ruth, a woman named Naomi loses her two sons, and, and her husband, they die while she is a pilgrim in a strange land. And she says to her daughters-in-law, No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. A little further here in verse number 20 and 21, it says, But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means joy or pleasantness, but call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So she says, I need a name change. I'm not pleasant anymore. I'm bitter. And notice why is she bitter? I normally think of this as, well, she's bitter because bad things are happening to her and she feels bitter. But what does it say? You should call me bitter because God has been bitter towards me. Okay? So she's dealing with a lot of pain. Do you think that she was doubting the goodness of God at that point? She believed that God had it out for her, that God was causing her pain. Have you ever seen this from someone before? Maybe they lose a friend, a family member, a job, and their money, and they doubt that God is on their side anymore. It's something we should be aware of. Next thing I want to look at is in the story of Elijah. And this is three chapters long, and even I couldn't bring myself to read the whole thing. So we'll summarize quickly. In 1 John 17, Elijah goes and testifies faithfully for God that it won't rain in Israel because of their idolatry. And he does this and he suffers through three long years and eventually it leads up to a showdown with him and the ministers of the false god Baal on Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings chapter 18, 20-24, the Lord shows himself to be the only true and living God. And in the following passages, God ends this three-year drought. It seems that God's will has finally been done, and Israel's going to come back to God. It seems like Elijah's excited because after all these trials, 
after all these difficulties, we finally won. We finally got a victory. And the next verse says that the queen of, of Israel just upped the ante against God's people. She wanted all the prophets of God killed. And so instead of this massive victory, instead of this returning back and maybe a golden age of Israel's obedience to God, instead of a mass revival, instead of a reconciliation of the northern and southern kingdoms, it's just gotten worse. And so Elijah says this in 1 Kings 9, verse number 4. It says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. I couldn't do any better than this. I tried, but all just like everybody else, I failed once again. Once again in verse number 10, and he, said, he repeats the same exact phrase in verse 14. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Elijah says, I've done everything right, and nothing is going well. You might as well kill me, God. It's not going to work. Do you think in this moment he doubted the plans that God had and God's sovereignty and ability to accomplish those things? Perhaps he expected that everything was going to be just hunky-dory after this. But it wasn't. Have you ever experienced that before? You've got plans for your life. The American dream, right? We find the person we're going to marry in high school and then we get married two years after we finish college and we've got the job and then... We get to 25, and it's not really rolling like that, is it? Sometimes we have expectations, and we put, um, we put our dreams, and we hold that up as what it must be that is God's will for us. And we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. We should be aware of this, and we should be careful that we shouldn't be disenfranchised by God when he doesn't deliver our promises that he has not made. Third thing I want to look at is in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He dealt with a lot of difficult times. In Jeremiah 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, they take root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. Here Jeremiah says, I've got a question for you, God. I've got something I'm doubting about. It seems like you're just, but how can it be that you're just and wicked people are prospering? How could it be that people who are doing evil, evil things are just getting away with it? It even seems like you're the one who's causing it. You're digging up the soil. You're, you're making it possible that they can flourish. Why are you letting them get away with it? Similarly, notice in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16 and 18, Jeremiah says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I was called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the assembly of mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream, as waters that fail? Jeremiah is saying, Lord, I know your word. I know what you say to do. You say to avoid people who are mockers. You say to avoid the wicked people. So I avoided all of them, and I didn't have any friends. I didn't have anybody to hang out with, and they've just got it going well. And yet, while it's going well for them, I'm suffering. How can that be? 
you ever felt that way before? <laughs> that it seems like while the wicked are doing evil, you're doing the right thing and all you're getting is trouble for your righteousness? There are people in this world that make money off sinful vices. There are certain fleshly activities that profit in this world that people make money off of that ruin people's lives. And meanwhile, while they are ruining people's lives, they are getting richer and richer and richer and richer and richer. And the question that many people ask that even Jeremiah asked is, how's that going to work? There's this example of perceived injustice, that God is not holding up his end of the bargain. Fourth thing of six that I want to look at that causes doubt is jealousy at sin. Thank you, Kale, for reading Psalm 73, a great example of someone who is dealing with doubt and works through it. I would encourage all of you to, to read that again at some point. Psalm 73, 1 through 4. This is a psalm of Asaph, and it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. So this is, I love this, okay? Sure, God is great, God is good, God blesses the righteous, but as for me, I wasn't really sure about that. This, this psalmist is looking back and he's reflecting on a time when he wasn't really sure, is God really? I know that God is good, but is he really good? It's this tension that we've talked about of having faith, but how does it work out? Why did it happen though? He says, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. He saw what the wicked had. And unlike Jeremiah, Jeremiah was just looking at it and thinking, this isn't right. How is God just? But here, Asaph has something that's a little more sinister that I think we need to be aware of, and that's that he was jealous, and he was envious. It wasn't just that he was questioning, is God really right? But rather, part of his doubts were rooted in the fact that he kind of wanted a piece of that. He wanted to participate in the things that were going well. He saw them and he desired the lifestyle that they had, how things were easy, and he wanted to be a part of that. And what happens then? Our sinful tendencies and our mind can begin to make excuses and doubts. It can begin to undermine our faith because we want to, to participate in this sin. Maybe you felt this way. You've looked at a, at a sin that other people were doing and thought to yourself, that looks like a whole lot of fun. Maybe it's the partying that your classmates are doing and they all run off and you think, well, looks like they're having a great time. I wish I could go over there. Maybe it's premarital intimacy that people are engaging in. Maybe it's the type of clothing, beverages, movies, or whatever the world is plunging us towards that in some moments we look and think, I know I shouldn't, but man, I wish I could do that. That would be so fun. This is the sort of thing that's going to lead to undermining our faith. That will lead to doubt because your mind is going to find ways to excuse this behavior. Another one I want to look at, kind of similar, Hebrews 3, verse 12 through 13. It says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Here it says that we need to have confidence, that we need to not have unbelief, and we need to be careful. Why? That we're not hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. One way that sin is deceitful is what we just talked about, how we have a desire and we really want to participate in that, so we justify it in our minds. But notice something else that goes on here is a hardening effect. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we can become hardened. Hardening means we've built up or we've lost our sensitivity to it. 
Whenever we participate in sin, sometimes what happens is it wasn't like we thought it, were gonna, it was going to be. We participate in it, and we have the choice to either acknowledge that it was wrong, or we can justify it in our minds. Perhaps we expose ourselves to explicit media in movies, music, the internet, or basically anywhere. And when we do that for the first time, our lives don't come crashing down, and we don't actually die like the preacher kind of indicated that we would if we do that thing. And we're like, hey, I got away with that. It wasn't so bad. They said my life would be over if I did that thing, and my life's not over. I got away with it. See how sin can be deceitful. It can cause us to doubt, is that really that bad? I know Romans 13, 13 says that people shouldn't live together before they're married, but it's how we get to know each other. It'll actually prevent divorce in the long run, and we can find ways to justify and undermine what God has said. These sorts of things and our sinful tendencies, ignoring the sin that we commit, can cause us to doubt. The last thing I want to look at as a cause of doubt is just simply false teachers. Matthew 24, 11, 12 says, There are many false teachers that will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. This is specifically talking about a time around the destruction of Jerusalem, but it's a principle seen all throughout Scripture. There are people who do not have your best interest in mind. There are people who are enemies of the cross. They may not admit it openly, but in the privacy of their own hearts, they would admit that they do not like God, they do not want you to serve Jesus Christ, and they would do everything in their power to tear you away from him. Okay? Now, there's not a boogeyman behind every corner. Not every person is doing that. But there are some people that do not care about you and would love nothing more in life than to tear you away from Jesus Christ. Don't ignore that. Don't underestimate that. Okay? So we've seen six potential causes. Perhaps there's more. There's a lot of things that can cause us to doubt, from external stimulus to internal stimulus to people just having it out for us. I want to make a case for a second about why you have to handle doubt. You may be saying to yourself, is it really that big a deal? I can just kind of ignore it for a little while. You know, I can even ignore it and, and, and not really notice it, and I don't have to deal with it. It's not messy, um, and I can come and do all kinds of great things. I can still be a perfectly good Christian, just ignore this thing that's going on here. I want to make a, a call from a pragmatic standpoint. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, says, God is not unjust to forget your labor, your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So why does this teach us about, we, about why we need to handle doubt? He's noticing here a time, he's reflecting on a time when you guys were enthused. You guys did work and labor. You ministered to the saints and you do minister. If we could put it this way for some of you who are here, you're greeting, you're helping with building stuff, you're helping with, um, with food pantry, you're helping with the clothing giveaway, you're doing all that great stuff, okay? And you need to show the same diligence to the full assurance. We need to have a passion of moving towards not just a passive in the middle sort of okay faith, but a further faith. We need to deal with these doubts. Why? So that we don't become sluggish. Because when we have doubts in our hearts that we don't deal with, we may be able to, in the short term, continue our level of productivity for Christ, but eventually, it's going to hamstring you. Eventually, it's going to catch up with you. Eventually, 
the world's going to completely change and everything we've been doing is going to completely slow down and we won't be able to work in the ways that we've used to been able to work. And then those doubts maybe begin to creep in. Okay? That's one reason we need to handle it is because it does affect you. We may be able to power through and ignore it for a time, but we're just building ourselves on a shaky foundation. The next thing I want to see is in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1. It says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, in English, or at least for me, one of the things I get drawn to in this phrase is the, um, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? It's sort of what my eye leaps to. Someone told me that in the Hebrew, uh, the emphasis on this phrase, and the thing that you should look at in this as being the, the central thing, is the, Has God said. Did God really say that? Okay. Satan sows the beginning of a seed of doubt. Did God really say you can't eat of every tree of the fruit uh, or of every tree in the garden? Well, let's see what Eve replies. It says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but in the fruit, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not touch it, nor, or excuse me, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve gives a response. Says, no, that's not true. Here's what God has said. Notice what Satan says in verses 4 and 5. It says, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan says, you're not going to die. Really, if you were to eat that, you would be like God. God's not trying to protect you. God's actually holding back on you. You'd be like him, and maybe that's a threat to him. And so Satan introduces this doubt into the character of God. Is God really on our side? And maybe that could have gone for a while, but what happens next? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So what happens here? She knew this tree existed, right? She knew it was a fruit tree. She knew you could eat it. Um, obviously, God said, don't eat it. So it's a, that implies it's possible to eat it. It wasn't until she had this question and this doubt in her mind that she looked and saw, hey, maybe I will do that. It was whenever she had a shaky foundation and she was questioning, is God really on my side? Is God good? Can I be like God? That that's when she committed the sin. And what happens many times is, we talked about it before, that sometimes sin leads to doubt. But sometimes doubt leads to sin. And sometimes these things come together. I want to consider, if you say yourself on a spectrum here, of faith versus unbelief. Is maybe we find ourselves, I don't know, let's say in the middle just for, to be arbitrary. Maybe what happens is we start in the middle and we have a little bit of a doubt, which moves us just maybe a little bit further right there. It's not very far. It's not very far. But... After we have a doubt and we're here, maybe we commit a sin that causes us to rethink it. And we move a step further down this way. And then maybe after that, someone who's a false teacher comes and introduces another doubt. And we do, we move further down the line. Part of what I would appeal to you and suggest to you is that rarely do people walk away from God for one reason only. Rarely, people will point and say, well, it was that thing. Okay, that might have been the thing that broke the camel's back. But rarely is there one thing. 
Usually it is a cocktail of sin, of doubts, of questions that didn't get answered, of loss of a family member, loss of a job, someone telling them false things, um, a Christian mistreating them. It's this huge smoothie of stuff that just gets plopped out. Part of the reason we need to deal with doubt is because it sends us further down this line. It leaves us open. It leaves us vulnerable to our weaknesses. If we want to have stronger faith, we need to move this direction along the timeline. Okay? Because it's part of Satan's attempts to turn us astray. The final thing I want to see about why to handle doubt. You remember in Habakkuk, Habakkuk had some pretty strong questions for God. He had some very direct things to say, God, why are you doing this? Notice what he says here in the last passage. It says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be found on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. What we see here in Habakkuk, very similar to what we saw in Psalm 73, is that those questions fostered growth. They went from a place of disbelief, of maybe questions and doubts, to a place of full confidence in God. What happens sometimes is we think to ourselves, oh, I have a doubt. I need to turn off my brain and not deal with this. I need to just ignore it. And what we're doing is we're, we're losing a chance to actually grow. If we want to grow, sometimes we have to change our mind about things. Notice what Philippians 2.12 says. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Notice what Paul says here. Paul says he's in prison. He's about to die. He says, look, you guys have done great following. Now it's time for you to handle this. You guys have got to figure this out for yourselves. You've got to be mature. You've got to finish the work of your faith. We've all got to mature at some points. And sometimes what we do is we think we're being strong because we ignore our doubts when really strength comes from working through those and growing through those things. And what we're actually doing instead of, of being strong is we're actually just stunting our growth. Instead of dealing with things that are messy, that are scary, we just say, eh, do the easy way out. But we're just causing ourselves problems in the long term. All right, so we made an appeal for why we need to deal with this. The last thing I want to talk about today is how to handle doubts. I'm going to give probably more things, um, but I want to give some things that I think are critical, some things that have really, really blessed me in terms of dealing with doubt. First thing is keep the main thing the main thing. Whenever it comes to rebuilding faith, when it comes to a foundation, when it comes to anything, a building, you've got to have a strong foundation. Make sure the foundation is strong. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as a first importance, first importance, this is the critical thing, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says, this was the thing that I wanted to get you guys to across, okay? Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again from the dead. And in the first verse, he calls this, this is the gospel. Okay, Start here. Okay, In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I declare to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, Stop. Stop there. Okay, We have to have a strong foundation. One of my failures 
is that I was came to believe that maturity came from talking about things that are not at the foundation, things that are further down the line, things that are disputable matters. And you're mature when, well, you can get out there and you can talk about that sort of stuff. And that's just not the case. Those things are important. They're important questions. Things like, how is Jesus both a man and God at the same time is an important question. Okay, Things like, how exactly does salvation work and atonement theory work and all that stuff? And there's books and books about that stuff. Okay, Those are important questions. But fundamentally is the belief in God, the belief in Jesus, and that he rose from the dead. I cannot tell you how many times I was sitting in college classrooms, watching television, or whatever else, when doubts would arise for me. When I would think, okay, that really challenges what I've always thought. And a central belief that Jesus... Christ rose from the dead, saved my faith in many circumstances. I was able to say, I don't know how all that works out. I don't know how all this synergizes, but there was a man who was dead and he is alive and that changes everything. Okay, Focus on that and we can work from there. Wherever you are, we can work from there. The next thing I want to notice um, as it pertains to doubting is one thing we need to be careful of when we're working through this is of how much we're talking don't just talk, listen. Sometimes whenever we get these ideas and we hear new things, we just want to talk, 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 and we don't want to hear what anyone else has to say. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. I've talked to people who have doubts, who have concerns, and they proceed to just completely you know, talk, 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 and whenever I try to come back with something, they're not listening. They're not actually listening. People want to give you answers. People want to help you, but you have to listen. Don't just take joy in your own opinion, but take joy in listening as well. Notice what Psalm 73 said about that. The psalmist here says, this is when he's in the muck. He says, whenever I thought about this, it was was too difficult for me. At that point in his life, if he would have said, I'm going to talk about this, I'm going to speak, then he would have spoken a lot of things that were not true. He would have betrayed the children of his generation. He could have said things that were hurtful to other people because he was in the wrong headspace. There's a need to deal with this, and we'll talk about the right context for that in a moment. But be careful of how much you're talking versus how much you're listening. Okay? The third thing that comes similar with Psalm 73 is beware of the voices that you trust. Similarly, if you, if you remember in Psalm 73, if you were paying close attention, you notice that he's talking all about how he went and saw this stuff, how he went and experienced this stuff how he saw and he, he perceived and all these things. And he heard them say, these false teachers, how can God know? Is there really knowledge with the Most High? Whenever we're doubting, whenever we have faith and want to deal with those doubts, we've got to be careful of the crowd that we're around because you can find people that are going to run you off towards unbelief. Okay, They're all over the place. You've got to be careful with the voices that you're listening to because you're going to find people that can hurt your faith I can tear you away from it. Similarly, I know of people who have said, I want to be intellectually honest and I don't want to be, you know, um, just manipulated by people on either side. And I respect that. Okay, we want to be intellectually honest. We don't just want to, we don't just want to turn our brains off. Okay, once again, not here for turning your brain off. But what he said he was going to do was he's just going to isolate himself. Just shut out all the voices. Don't listen to anybody. Proverbs 18 verse 1 says, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. 
he rages against all wise judgment. Whenever we isolate ourselves, okay, number one, in this world, you can't isolate yourself, okay? Like, period. They're in the 1000 BC, you might have been able to find a shack in the middle of Israel where you could actually isolate yourself. But today, you can't actually isolate yourself, okay? You've got to go to work. You're, you're going to be around people. People are going to influence you. But even if you try to shut out all those voices, where are you going to go? This passage says you're going to go for your own desires. And unfortunately for many of us, we have sinful desires in our heart, okay? We have things that are going to lead us the wrong direction. So don't isolate yourself. Look, I'm all for thinking through stuff. Free thought, actually think and coming to good conclusions, that's, I'm so on that team, okay? And you don't have to isolate yourself from people to do that, okay? Just because you're listening to voices that are helping you doesn't mean that you're being manipulated or that you're just being a sheep, okay? Final thing I want to talk about for how to handle doubt is you have to choose community. So we've mentioned about beware of the voices you trust. If we want to have doubt but do that in a way that's faithful, we need to choose community to do that. Psalm chapter 42, verses 2 through 4, it says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. So here, this psalmist is in, a, is in a position where they're away from the temple. And there's people, there's voices who are saying, where's God? Can you really trust him? Is he really there? Can he be believed? Can you put your confidence in him? And this psalmist instantly thinks back to the time that they were amongst God's people. They think back to the times when there were people there who had their best interests at heart, if I can say it that way. Notice what he says here in the next psalm. These two psalms, unlike most, are actually connected. It says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and on the harp I will praise you, O God my God. This psalmist recognizes that strength is found in the community of God. It's found near the family of God. And there's a time when just for whatever reason he he had to be away, but he's saying, I got to get back here because that's where strength is. All those voices out there that are telling me the opposite of what God would have me to hear, the opposite of what's going to fulfill and lead to faith, I've got to get away from those voices because we need community. Notice here how he talks about going with the multitude in the in the previous passage. I am so thankful for this community here. I am so thankful for a community that has allowed me to doubt and ask questions and seek better answers. Better answers than I'd heard before. That's caused me to see where I need to rethink and change my heart. Where I had misconceptions about God that had to be dealt with that had to be realigned. And the reason I was doubting was because I believed something about God that wasn't true. I'm thankful for my friends Dustin and Jordan and how many times we go to the mat arguing about stuff. Thankful for my eldership and their consistent leadership. And I'm thankful for my friend Mike, who at a time when I, if I would have been told whenever I asked that question, just don't worry about it. I don't know if I'd be standing here today or not. 
Friends, together we can do this. Together we can come to a full assurance of faith. We can come to an understanding of the truth. I want to read this passage with you. Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 19, to talk about how we rely on each other. It says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, of who our Lord Jesus Christ, or sorry, of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Friends, the prayer here is that we as a community of believers, we as Christians together do this. We need the insight of each and every one of us. Paul is not saying, I pray that each and every one of you individually can understand all this stuff. No, you can't do it. We need each other. We need each other's perspective. I've been blessed by older people, by younger people, by men, by women, by children. With this, with this confidence being rooted and grounded together in love, we can handle any doubt and we can handle any question that you have. The people here are committed to truth and are not afraid of where it's going to lead us. So as we think about how to handle doubt, I want to emphasize to you, keep the main thing the main thing. Don't be off in the weeds arguing about disputable matters. Focus on what matters. Don't just talk. Be willing to listen to people. Beware of which voices you're listening to and choose community. Ask people questions because they might have the very same questions. And we might together be able to come to a fuller knowledge of the unknowable knowledge of God. As we close, I want to read this passage for you. It says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I want to ask you that question this morning. Do you believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? Are you willing to scrape and claw? Are you willing to go to places that are scary? Are you willing to deal with sins that are deep within your heart? Because God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do we have passion? Do we have a continuance and an effort to get closer to God? Because if I get closer to God, he will bless me. I want to encourage you in that way this morning. We're about to sing a song. I believe we've got, I know whom I have believed. It talks about how there's all these things we don't know the answer to, but we have trust in Jesus. And as you sing that song, I want to encourage you this morning to think, can you sing that song in faith? As we sing, if you can sing in faith, God bless you and move closer to us as we do this together. But if you can't sing that song in faith, we want to help you. We want to help you so bad. If we can help you, please come. Have a seat on the front as we stand and sing. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com normanchurch.com normanchurch.com